Uninvisible is a support podcast that provides information, ideas, suggestions, and experiences that deal squarely with medical issues that present unique advocacy issues for individuals. We do not provide medical advice of any kind. We do provide support, concepts, ideas, discussions, and information you can use to make sure that you are being heard and that your concerns are being addressed. Please consult with your physician for any medical issue that you are facing, but we will be here for you along your journey. We welcome all comments about our episodes and, of course, the correction of any errors. Information and comments that you send to us are governed by our Terms of Service and Privacy Policy, which are available on our website, located at www.uninvisiblepod.com. The opinions expressed by guests are their own and are not necessarily the opinion of Uninvisible or the show sponsors. Most of all, we welcome your stories and experiences to share with our community, because without you, this community and the benefit it offers all of us would not exist. Any advertising that you may hear is accepted without regard to our editorial content. Of course, in the event that you are having a medical emergency of any kind, consult your physician or emergency services. Welcome to Uninvisible. I'm your host, Lauren Friedman, and I'm here with my guests to bring you info, insights, and inspiration for coping with, diagnosing, and treating invisible illness. We're here oversharing, so you don't have to struggle with invisibility anymore. All right, guys, thank you so much for joining us today. I'm here with Jamisha Prescott, who is a survivor of multiple invisible illnesses, including lupus with Raynaud's um, and FAI, which is femoroacetabular impingement that she's going to tell us about. Um, And she's almost there with a a diagnosis of celiac. So she's going to tell us all about her her health journey. She's also the founder of You Look Okay to Me, which is an amazing advocacy website um, full of videos and information that she's put together about living with disability and chronic illness. So Jamisha, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited. Yeah. Another thing, if you haven't noticed, Jamisha is also British. So um, (laughs) her experience has been on in a different healthcare system than what some of our listeners may be used to hearing about. Um, She's our second British guest so far. So um, it'll be interesting to hear about how you've um, journeyed into wellness on the NHS. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, It's an interesting one. (laughs) Well, let's get right into it. So tell us when and how you first that you were sick and uh, what steps you took to get diagnosed? So I think the first steps when I, like the first time that I realized I was sick was around 16 years old when it was truly sort of something I started to think about. Um, So I, in the UK we have, so we finish high school at 16 and then we start something called sixth form, which is between high school and university. So it's from 16 to 18. Mm -hmm. So at that stage where I was going to school at that point, I just started getting just weird symptoms. Um, I decided that back then I was going to work out a lot. I wanted to get fit. It wasn't really about body shape or size. It was more, I just wanted to feel strong. Mm -hmm. Um, So I started working out every day and eating better and drinking water and doing all things like that. Um, but then for some reason during the time that was happening, I was just getting extremely tired, extremely painful, like joints and, and muscles. So I kind of chalked up to the exercise. I was just like, okay, maybe, you know, you're just exercising too hard or you're not stretching enough or something. But then after a while, I was just like, this is not, 
this is not right. And I stopped exercising for a period of time. And then I just had a massive flare. I would say probably one of my first ones where I just was sleeping for so long. I was missing school sometimes, being really late because I was just sleeping past all the alarms. Uh, I had trouble walking, um, shortness of breath, um, just loads of different symptoms. And I was just so confused. And I was like, it can't be the exercise anymore. Like it just, I can't justify that. So then I went to my GP and explained what's happening. And they, they probably shooed me away a couple of times saying I'm fine. Tested my vitamin D, tested my iron, the usuals. Um, and just said, you know, we've tested all your bloods and nothing's wrong, you know. So I don't really know what to tell you. And then I think I just sort of took it on myself. And I know doctors don't like this. It's probably going to scream when they hear me say this. But I Googled my symptoms. <laughs> Sorry. Like, but I didn't Google it in a... Ignored already by your caretakers, by, by your <laughs> everything, you know, and pushed away a few times. I don't blame you. Yeah, well, what else was I supposed to do? Because I just knew, I just didn't, I hated feeling that way and didn't have an explanation for it. So I um, I Googled my symptoms, but I didn't do it in a way where I was like, oh, I've got like this illness on my days, I'm going to die. Like, oh my gosh. But it was more like, okay, here's a list of like five that it sounds like. It sounds like arthritis. It sounds like it could be lupus, maybe Lyme disease. I do live in a wooded area, so it could be that. Um, Sjogren's syndrome and fibromyalgia. So I was like, okay, we've got these five. It sounds similar. Yeah. So then I rang, so my parents kind of pay for this kind of private healthcare system. So we don't have private healthcare, but sometimes you can pay. And from time to time, you can get a private uh, sort of treatment, I guess, because you've been paying into this thing. Um, we don't use it very often, but we, we sometimes call them up for advice. And they basically said, if you think it's lupus, these are the blood tests you should be asking for. Just have a conversation with your doctor and say, you know, you say you tested everything, but actually did you test these things and we went and we did that and as soon as we asked they were like okay cool like you need to write us a letter and then we'll refer you and then that's where sort of the journey started with getting referred to a rheumatologist it had to happen because you had to take it upon yourself to the yeah and to get the resources to then bring to your doctor yeah, yeah. exactly yeah it wouldn't have happened otherwise i mean the last the, the time before that where i went the doctor said take Barocca. i don't know if you have that in america I, we don't, but it's basically like a yeah. remedy. So basically, yeah. you put it in a drink and yeah. it fizzes and it makes it orangey. Tastes very nice, but I don't think <laughs> I don't think it's, it's gonna help. Like the um, and it tastes like yeah. Fanta. <laughs> <laughs> so like then that was the journey of basically like going to rheumatologists and the first one I saw, she just said it was arthritis before you've been doing an X-ray. So I was like, okay, I don't. I think you're a bit crazy so I'm gonna go to someone else the second one was amazing and she was just like it sounds like lupus to me I'm gonna test all these things it was like three pages of stuff um but then when I went back to get the results to see if I had lupus or not I didn't see her I saw someone else and they were very dismissive they were like oh yeah because you've got lupus blah 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 and I'm like oh wait 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 wait, what like what I have lupus like hold on like this wasn't said to me before having not not knowing what you had to being like oh it's lupus without even yeah really dismissive like I already knew but then I went back to her for another checkup because at that point they wanted to see me quite frequently and then all of a sudden she this woman was like a different person she was just like oh I don't think it's lupus oh wow I don't think it's lupus anymore um but I was like you don't have my notes in front of you also, I do recall certain antibodies being present in my blood. Oh, well, you know, those are common amongst certain people sometimes. I don't think it's lupus. I think it's a psychological issue that you're having here. You know, I think it's depression. The um, depression card when it's yeah. a physiological symptom. Thanks, guys. Thanks for that. Sure. And you know what? Like, 
some people when they experience fatigue have depression like that's that's fine but for me I just didn't feel like that was the case you can have depression and have fatigue and stuff and it's also I felt like she was being dismissive of depression in that regard as well because like depression and like that should be taken very seriously um but she but she also then was just like, but, it, you know, I feel like it's, um, and she conflated these two because they're not the same, but she was like, you know, it's fibromyalgia and I think you need to go see a psychotherapist because, yes, I think it's that. And I was crying my eyes out. I was really upset because I knew that this wasn't the case. If you feel any better, I had the exact same thing where I was told and it's so cool. to be a psychotherapist. And I was like, what? Like, if you read my chart, you'd know I already go to a therapist anyway. <laughs> like, this happens so much, I think, to women especially. You know, that yeah. and considered hysterics, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And it's sad how common this story is. It's sad that when I say this, everyone goes, me as well. You just did it as well. Like, oh, yeah, that happened to me. That's really sad and worrying how common that is. Um, so we ended up complaining. And I luckily, because of the complaint, got referred to a specialist. So this guy is the only person in the UK, I believe, who's a professor. Like, he has his own, like... Well, I don't know if he's the only person, but I know he's a professor of lupus specifically. And there's a ward in Guy's Hospital in which lupus patients who are referred to him get seen there. I'm on the milder end of the lupus spectrum. Like I don't have organ failure or anything. So I don't go very often, but he does see me and he kind of just reviews it. And that's where I am now with the lupus diagnosis. So I did get there eventually, but there was a period of time of waiting where I just felt like, am I crazy? Which, by the way, having depression doesn't mean you're crazy, but... Like, am I just making this up? Like, maybe I am. Like, oh, maybe it is me. Like, and then you start questioning yourself and what you know about yourself. Um, So it was really, it was actually really difficult. Like, I, it was not nice. And, but but, yeah, like talking to people did help with that because you realize you weren't the only person that went through that experience. Yeah. And I mean, I I mentioned how we, we often think that that's something that, that happens to women more than men, right? Do you think there's also a factor here being a woman of color that that also may have affected the doctor's impression of your situation and may have affected the reaction to it as well? Mm, I feel like that might be the case, but I can't, there's not anything that indicates that for me to say like this happened where I feel like because I'm a, a black woman that, that, do you know what I mean? I do feel like there is a prejudice with black women. I think there's this, um, so what I will say, obviously, I'm on the journey to potentially uh, investigate endometriosis. That is where I see more of my ethnicity being dismissive of, of my condition. So I obviously experience a lot of the symptoms that are present with endometriosis on multiple occasions from when I was 13 years old. I've been trying to kind of talk to doctors about this. And it's always the, well, you know, black women naturally bleed more than white women. So... I can't believe someone actually said that. Multiple times. It's not just one person. I, I, I would say probably all doctors I've spoken to about this have said this to me. Like, well, yes, we, you know, it's quite common for black women to have hairy, heavy periods. Does that make it okay? <laughs> like, like, and does it, does it make it okay that I'm in pain right now? Like, that's the bottom line, right? <laughs> yeah. So I think sometimes there's this idea, maybe, and it's, I don't think it's conscious. I often don't think it's unconscious but that black women can withstand more pain than other races and therefore are not um, afforded the same sensitivities maybe that other ethnicities are as well I can't speak for other ethnicities because I'm not that and there's nothing that's really been outright sort of suggested to me that maybe that does come into play I just I do think it is I just can't sit here and be like okay this happened this happened other women have experiences like that I don't have many like that I would say my age comes into play I do think that 
or the way I look. So I've got the piercings now, which I think ages me a bit. I think people think I'm a bit older now. Before having these, though, I think people assume I'm a lot younger than I am. Like I'm 23, but some people think I'm 18 or 17 or something like that. And so because of that, even though my age is on the chart, they kind of are quite condescending when they're talking to me, like I'm stupid. Um, and I think the way I look in terms of age-wise has a, has a, has a, has a, a, um, a part in that, which is why I bring my mum to my appointments. I do because... too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's so important to have that advocate with you sometimes to just like shut them down when you just don't have the strength to do yeah. it. Yeah. And it's funny because me bringing her, what that does now is makes them look at her and ask her questions about me and not talk to me. I'm like, no, she's here as, as like just supports in case I forget something. She's not here for you to talk to her on behalf of me though. So I would say those come into play. I do think being a woman comes into play absolutely 100% as well. Um, So yeah, um, I just think uh, being a woman, especially when you have a chronic illness and you're trying to get diagnosed, I think we're often misunderstood and underdiagnosed. And I don't think that doctors take us very seriously. And at this point, I don't always think it's a conscious bias. I think it's ingrained in the medical industry. Um, so that, and I think specifically also our reproductive health is not taken very seriously. It's quite dismissive. Um, like it's not that serious. And many, you know, the fact that like one in 10 people, you know, anymore, because actually someone rightly so said to me that uh, trans people could also suffer from endless like trans men but one in ten people will have endometriosis and it's just like that's a lot of people and it's still not taken seriously so I just definitely think um more needs to be done definitely yeah it's really upsetting and shocking when you really look at the statistics in terms of like how much longer it takes a woman to be diagnosed with any kind of chronic illness compared to a man um and yeah how that would affect the trans community as well would definitely change all of the, the statistics mm-hmm. so um and i appreciate you mentioning them too so so we've talked about the lupus part of your your health journey um can you tell us about your other um chronic illnesses and how you found out you had those going on we also mentioned the endometriosis that you're on your way to to being diagnosed um but in terms of the Raynaud's and the fai um how did all of that manifest um so Raynaud's actually was probably one of the first symptoms I've ever experienced before I even knew that I had lupus from a child I actually thought it was quite funny to have Raynaud's but like my fingers would um get cold very easily and change colors and I used to think it was the coolest thing ever I thought it was so amazing it's like oh my gosh my fingers oh, I was just saying it's it's one way to look at it like a superpower you know like you've got like yeah <laughs> Being eight definitely changes the way you think about things for sure. But um, then obviously it just starts to come up. Like, you know, why does it take so long for my hands to warm up? Didn't realise it wasn't normal how long it taking an hour, sometimes two hours for my hands to actually be warm or being at night time. And it's not that cold out. But from my ankles down, my feet are ice cold. Like that's not, that's not normal. Um, so that actually was before I even had lupus in my mind that that was way early on and it's something I've kind of always had um the FAI I would say so I presented myself when I was 16 as well but I ignored it for a while so my surgeon basically says that FAI is something quite common amongst people who are quite uh, active I was very active very young um 
it's a fairly common injury amongst them. Apparently, I think it's American football players and people who do lots of jumping and activities. And I used to like run track and do all that type of stuff from like 11, like maybe 10, I would be doing that stuff. And um, they say that it can sometimes happen where you've, you've, as you are growing, especially through puberty, it can deform the hip joint. It can, it's quite common amongst like young people to have this illness. Um, my mum and my aunt both have it. And I do think it's partly genetic, but they also were highly competitive sports in school as well. So I think that has something to do with it. So that, I think that started to present itself around the same time I was getting diagnosed with lupus, but I thought it was a lupus symptom. And then when I told my professor, Dr. Guy, hey, I've got this hip problem, he did a hip exam and said, that's not lupus because your bones are clicking. So that's nothing to do with rheumatology. I can't really treat you. And that's where the journey of having FAI sort of happened. And once again, I had to go through the journey of people not believing I had this issue because it showed up on x-rays, MRIs and CTs, but not very well. And so regular hip doctors are a bit like, oh, you know, it's not coming from your hip. It's probably your lupus, which side note is another thing that happens when you have multiple chronic illnesses. It's a bit of ping pong blame of trying to blame the other chronic illness when it's not that. And I have to actually just name drop my doctor sometimes and be like, well, Professor De Cruz says it's not lupus. So are you insinuating that you know more about lupus than Professor De Cruz? Because you don't. So if he's saying it's not lupus, then it's not, it's not lupus. I have to drop, name drop him. Otherwise, like, they, won't, they won't take what I'm saying seriously. And as soon as I drop his name, that's when they go, um, well, um, well, then, it, it, you know, my, maybe it's not lupus, but then it's not your hip. So then if it's not my hip, even though the pain's in my hip, then where is it coming from then? Well, I don't know, but um, yeah, you know, it's not your hip. And eventually, you know, once again, long process, I find a doctor that takes me seriously. He decides to um, do surgery because I went through a process of getting steroid injections and doing everything I could, physiotherapy to try and make it better. But at the end of the day, if the bone is impinging on the hip ball, there's only so much physio and steroid injections you can do before you need to actually just do something about it. So I've had two hip surgeries on that hip. And the first time I just... I don't know. I think most people with chronic illnesses know the relief when someone tells you that there's actually a problem, which normal people might think that that's not, why do you, why are you relieved that you have something wrong with you? But I think it's just to prove yourself right, that you knew in your mind something was wrong and it's not made up. So after the surgery, he came to see me and said, yeah, we went in your hip and there was impingement. There was a bit of damage. And I remember being high on the morphine, but I was just like, oh, okay. Yes. Like, I wasn't crazy because they told me as well, like, oh, well, it's not your hip. So actually going inside and doing the surgery and then coming out and saying, yes, um, it is your hip. Just the sense of uh, relief was, yeah. I can't describe that sense of relief to anyone. It's, and I know most chronic illness patients know what it feels like. You want to just cry. Like you're just like all this time I've been fighting, fighting, fighting. Indication. And I prove right. Yeah. yeah. Everything you felt up until that point. Yeah. And it's a total vindication. I mean, it's interesting that you were mentioning how you'd have to name drop your male doctor and how the me yeah. of how you almost require mm-hmm. to, be able to drop this man's name mm-hmm. to legitimize what's going on with you as a woman, you know, like even yeah. though it's not necessarily a, a female centric disease, um, FAI necessarily from, what mm. reason, but you know, the irony in all of your symptoms and everything you've gone through and being dismissed as a woman and then needing a man to legitimize you is like, yeah, it's unreal. Yeah. And you have to play the game sometimes in order to get the result. Like at the end of the day, 
I want you, realistically, I want to not have these things. At the end of the day, I know something's wrong, though. So if you're right, you're right. I don't fight doctors if I think, if I think they could be right. But if I know that you're, you're not, what you're saying doesn't make sense as well, you're not making sense, then that's where I get frustrated. And then um, I guess lastly, obviously I'm near a diagnosis of celiac. Most likely it will either be celiac or some kind of... Uh, gluten intolerance which is slightly different to celiac or uh, wheat intolerance or something to do with bread and pasta basically but um same thing so I've had stomach issues for a while once again I think I'm starting to think and I'm really thinking as I'm talking to you that something happened when I was 16 (laughs) that like set off these things because I had stomach issues from 16 and I remember having an issue where I couldn't walk to school because my stomach pain was so bad and I did walk but I was like bent over and it took me probably like 40 minutes to walk down this one road and I was being dumb I should have went home like I actually should have just went home but I'm one of those people where like if I've gotten most of the way I'm I'm going to get to school like I'm gonna I'm gonna get there (laughs) but um that was back in high school so now like I started to realize that bread was bothering me. So I thought, okay, maybe it's just bread. Like maybe that's the issue. And I sort of would ignore the symptoms, but this stomach issue was always around. And then these last couple of months, I just started having these strange symptoms, like really bad stomach pains where I was eating sandwiches. I would eat like a sandwich. Um, I'd go like to work when I was freelancing and then I would eat a sandwich every day of that week. And by the end of the week, I couldn't get out of bed because my stomach was hurting so much. So that's when I started to think like, I think there's something more to this. So I went to... GP again, a student doctor saw me and interestingly enough, when I explained my symptoms to him, he said, that sounds like celiac to me. And this is someone that's just starting out on their medical career. Um, when I got passed over to other doctors though, they were like, I mean, it's going to be IBS, isn't it? Like, yeah, I mean, like, that's what it's probably going to be. That could be if Very dismissive. Once again. If there's stomach pains, that could be an IBS symptom, but it sounds like it's very specific to wheat and gluten for you. Absolutely. IBS and into celiac territory. But it's interesting that, as you say, it was a, a younger student doctor. And I wonder if perhaps in the younger generation of doctors coming through, maybe there's more of an awareness being fostered of some of these invisible chronic illnesses. I think so. I think with, as I've noticed with some student doctors, some of them can be quite arrogant. I've noticed, but some of them, there's a sense of more of a sense of wonder and curiosity with some of them. And I think with the NHS in a way is sometimes I think like it's beaten out of them. They just get tired sometimes. And I think that's what happens to some doctors, especially with our with the way our cuts are going. But I think when they're early on, there's this kind of brightness for some of them, like this bright sense of just curiosity and just wanting to just really just get started that sometimes it can be to your benefit because you go to the other doctors and they were just like well I've seen this all before you know and once again my mum has IBS my mum had to be in hospital for a week because they didn't know what was wrong with her because of IBS so even you kind of going it's going to be IBS isn't it once again it's dismissive because it might be but some people really struggle with that illness it's like it's not just because it's not got maybe like the grand name of celiac or Crohn's it doesn't mean it's not painful it doesn't mean it doesn't affect people's lives and it can really damage people so I just once again don't like the dismissiveness of saying it's that as well um but then yeah like last month I had my endoscopy and colonoscopy and I just thought that I didn't think they were going to find anything and immediately the guy who did it was just like that looks like celiac to me that's what I think that is they're going to check but I can see almost already because people with celiac have a damaged uh villa so I think that's like the tentacle looking things in your stomach um 
And if you have celiac, they're really flat and short rather than standing up and raised. And he said that, yeah, you have damaged stomach lining and that looks like celiac. I'm going to take a biopsy um, and check, but um, he saw it straight away. So obviously I'm not got an official diagnosis for that, but he didn't see nothing for no reason. So um, it's just... With the celiac, you've been a little lucky. Like you've had a few doctors who actually knew what they were doing, except for the IBS guy. But like, it sounds like he's right on it. And then uh, the person who performed the endoscopy was also right on it as well. Yeah, it skipped a few steps. But it's just all that to say, why do I have to fight every time? Why does it have to be like that? Every time, why does it have to be every single time I've got to fight with you? I want to work with you. I want to figure this out. But I have to come armed with notes and dates and everything and pictures. And it's like, sure, that's good to do. But why do I have to do that? And it's just like, I just, God forbid, like, I didn't have that mentality. And really, I ha- only had this mentality because of lupus, because I was proved right. Where would I be if I decided to give up? I don't know like how far this would have gotten. How far would my lupus have progressed? I have an aunt that passed away from it because it got diagnosed very late into her life. So I just always wonder like if I didn't push and I didn't fight you on this, where would I be? And that scares me. And that's why all of my friends, even if they if something's small or they think something's going on, I push them really, really hard. And I say, you know, you really have to keep going back. And I'm on them like their own parent because it's just like they don't know everything. And they are pushed to their limits as well because of these cuts with the NHS and the NHS sold off to private companies and whatnot. Um, so that as well. But yeah, I mean, that's all quite long-winded, but... Uh, <laughs> um, very, a very fair description because you're really giving us a sense of that frustration and the anger that comes along with being chronically ill because no one wants to feel this way, you know? Mm. Uh, um, and, and that's the irony as well. That- so many of us go into these appointments and we're like, I'm sick. And a doctor tells us we're not, or a doctor tells us we're sick with something that it clearly isn't, you know? Um, and then we have to do the work to push back, to get mm. coverage, to get the right doctor, to get people to understand what's going on. So it's mm. like, we're having to do extra translation. And I've had so many people give a tip of like tracking your symptoms so that you can get yep. doctors um, data. Because that's sometimes the only way some of them understand it. You know, they're not going to mm-hmm. understand if you come in and you say, I feel this way and I feel that way. They want hard data, you know. So yeah. All of the accommodations that we have to make to try to be understood, there also needs to be a give and take on the side of the medical system as well. And it's frustrating. It very much so is. Yeah. Um, when I, I went to a talk uh, the other day. Um, so there's an app we've got in the UK. I don't know if they have it in the US called Babylon. Um, I've heard of it, but possibly available in both we'll have to look it up (laughs) so like it's available on the nhs and it's basically like a a gp in your phone so you can't have a gp like an actual gp you have to be a a member of basically of babylon and basically you have 24-hour access to the gp uses artificial intelligence and that type of stuff and i went to the talk where the creator was there but mainly it was a med school that was there but the talk was open to the public and i just feel like i was the only non-med school student there so i tried to pretend i was a med student (laughs) <laughs> so I laugh at all the jokes and stuff. I didn't feel stupid, but um, they made a one student made a joke because they showed a demonstration of the app and it basically insinuated that this person may have this type of illness. I can't remember what it was, and one student put their hand up and was just like, "Oh, it's so funny that you use the example of X illness because you know in our med school they laugh and say you know it's almost never that one." 
And the creator of the app said, but you see, this is why I have the app. Because at the end of the day, humans need to work with artificial intelligence because artificial intelligence has less of the bias that you have. Like, for example, you having that kind of, oh, it's never that. Artificial intelligence doesn't think about it's never that. It just says this is the symptoms that we think it is and it matches up with these other illnesses. So they're going to spit to you, okay, it could be this, this, this and this. It's your duty as a doctor now using the artificial intelligence to test it anyway, not giving into your human bias because if you work together with the AI, You've got the AI machine, which doesn't have human experience, which you have, which is amazing. But then you, the artificial intelligence will have less of the bias and therefore force you to check certain things. And what that will mean is someone that you think is coming with a stomach bug who may have stomach cancer, that doesn't slip through your net, perhaps like it would have done if you hadn't tested it because of your human bias. And that to me was just like, wow. It was really interesting because it shows that mindset kind of sometimes gets brought in fairly early on in med school. Yes, absolutely. Well, and maybe not even in med school, maybe also just, you know, some of the biases we're talking about, about being a woman and coming for treatment, or being mm-hmm. color and coming for treatment, or being trans and coming for treatment, like mm-hmm. all the biases that come along with these other sort of markers that, that people judge us by, you know, yeah, um, really interesting. And it sounds like that app was probably developed, at least in some part to combat those internal biases. So that's a really interesting take on everything and and wow if if trainee doctors are able to work with ai in that way and we're able to use ai as a a bridge to sort of bridge the gap in communication it's sort of it's sort of weird because it's like wow we need artificial intelligence because we can't communicate directly with humans but what it's revealing is so true mm-hmm. yeah. definitely yeah so, <laughs> in terms of um the illnesses that you have, um, mm. what steps have you taken aside from advocating for yourself and like bringing your mom to appointments and, you know, um, really pushing for answers? What are the other steps that you've taken to control your health? Um, have you been doing sort of regular medications and, and different therapies to try and control symptoms? So at the moment, I take regular medication for lupus only just because the other ones don't have medications that come with it. Um, I'm doing physiotherapy for my hip. So, you know, it's still painful at the moment. So I've been trying to do swimming and I have an exercise bike and stuff like that to try and keep myself active, keep myself... uh, I miss being fit. So it's almost like a little bit of a... It might not be a goal I ever get to, but it's some kind of goal of trying to um, maintain some kind of fitness level is something that I enjoy. Um, I'd say one that's a bit more abstract is kind of whenever I'm in pain, which sometimes could just feel like all over my body, slowing down and actually going, where actually does it hurt? I have an app now where I can um, point on this like human body where it is and it tracks it on that day. So, you know, if ever anything happens, I can say, okay, this is where it was hurting that day, this specifically, Um, because I don't think I do that very often. I kind of go, oh, it hurts everywhere. But then actually it's like, no, it's your left shoulder and it, it's your arms going down to your fingers and it's your toe and your right hip. So I do that a lot just so I'm really clear and aware of which part of my body is actually like giving me some kind of signal that it's, it's in pain. And that's um, chronic pain too, because chronic pain does, it, it becomes a thing where it sort of takes over your mind and you do start to feel it everywhere because it tense up because of reactions in your body to it and muscles sort of tightening and sympathy. And it can be really hard to map out exactly where that pain is. So that's a really smart tip. Mm. Yeah. it's one definitely like more of a recent thing for sure and I guess 
you know, I'm not diagnosed with celiac yet, but I've been eliminating gluten from my diet um, to see if it's been helping me. It's really fucking tough, mate. Like it is um, because I work where I work. When I first realized that, that I might be celiac, I thought, let me start now. Let's just see how it works now. Let me not wait for the diagnosis. And I walked into the cafe like, okay, I'm going to eat something. And then you look at everything and it's like, and they write the allergens everywhere, which is great. But it was like gluten, 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 gluten. Decade, right? Like that you exactly. see that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. You'd have to work that out for yourself back in the day. Um, and not even that long ago, to be honest. Um, and I was just like, damn, what can I eat? So now it's like, okay, I need to buy gluten-free porridge in the morning so I can have my porridge in the morning. I need to buy uh, gluten-free bread if I want a sandwich. Uh, I need to, when I go, to, if I eat out and there's a pasta place called Coco de Mama, I have to ask for the gluten-free facility pasta. It sounds so, like, <laughs> I guess first world important because... Yeah, it's still a thing. Yeah. Just because it's a first yeah, world problem doesn't exactly. mean it's not a problem, right? You know? No, exactly. And it's not like people in non-first world countries don't have celiac. I mean, they probably do. You've mentioned that, you know, you've, you've advocated for yourself and that you bring your mom to appointments with you so that she is also there as an advocate or like a buffer, right? Um, and I'm wondering how that advocacy and having her there has affected your relationship with her. But I'm wondering also how advocating for yourself has affected your relationship to yourself, like whether it's affected your self-confidence as it's developed over time. It feels almost like she's got it as well. Mm. She doesn't have the symptoms, but she knows exactly the feeling of being pushed back and having to fight all the time because we've kind of been in it together from the very beginning. So, you know, we kind of have that understanding and she's, has a, she's had her own issues with health in certain regards. And so um, I don't go to her appointments because usually I'm at school or something, but... Um, she might bring my granddad who used to work at our local hospital for a very long time, or she might bring my grandma to her appointment. So almost like her coming to mind has sparked this uh, advocacy-ness in our family where we will go to each other's appointments if we feel like uh, we're going to be taken advantage of. Because I also think old people, or should I say people of older age, elderly people get taken advantage of and not taken seriously. So my mum goes to my granddad's appointments as well. And we all kind of just advocate for each other and make sure that we're there not every appointment but for the key ones where you feel like okay this is a big one and I think we really need to get this message across we try to show up for each other and I think it just it really helps I don't care what the doctor has to say about me bringing my mom at 23 years old like I need someone here because you know you might say something to me and I might miss something and having that person there it just it, it does help and it's hard to do stuff alone. It's really difficult. So um, I even say to my friends, like, if you want me to come, like, I'll come as well. Like, I'll sit there with my notepad. Like, <laughs> but um, it's really helpful. And I, th- I guess advocating for myself, um, I think it has helped my self-confidence because, and it, I feel like it's extended outside of illness, just in general, because I feel like I was a very... Uh, I guess keep calm, carry on type mentality, you know, just keep your head down. Oh, it's not that serious. Don't complain about it. Don't complain. And it's like, well, it's not really complaining. It's speaking up for yourself and saying what you need and what you, what you need to have. And so while, while that's extended, while that started in the hospital and doctor's office, it's extended to workplace where I have to, I tell people I need this in place to do my job because of my chronic illness, I need to have this in place. And I wouldn't have said that before. In the early stages of my lupus, I, wouldn't, I would not have said that because in my mind, I was a completely able-bodied person. I just had this little thing rather than 
you have this thing that that does affect your life like you know and you would need adjustments in certain places because you keep masquerading and pretending you're going to do yourself an injury or just make yourself feel like crap um and I guess that in turn has advocated outside of my personal relationships too where I've had friends that didn't really understand my chronic illness and therefore we're not really friends anymore because I was and it's interesting like what you're saying is that really that that advocacy within your family and for yourself it's strengthened all of those bonds not only has it strengthened your ability to speak your mind and ask for what you need and to to separate the wheat from the chaff as it were and like let go of people who weren't important in your life you know Mm. but also strengthen those bonds within your family which is absolutely wonderful it's kind of a a a blessing and a, a benefit of being ill I suppose isn't it it is definitely Definitely. Definitely puts a positive spin on that, the chronic illness. This episode is sponsored by Ember Wave, the intelligent bracelet that helps control how you experience temperature. I'm heat sensitive because of my Hashimoto's and medications, and this device has been a lifesaver. Using patented technology, it cools or warms the temperature-sensitive skin on your wrist, creating a natural response in your body and mind that helps you thermally adjust in minutes. The Wave was selected by Time Magazine as one of 2018's best inventions. But because the technology is new, it can be pricey. So for those of you with mounting medical costs to consider, the team at Ember offer a payment plan in partnership with a firm. And because you also listen to Uninvisible, they're offering you $30 off. Go to emberlabs.com, that's E-M-B-R labs.com, enter code INVISIBLE at checkout, and experience personal thermal wellness on a whole new level with me. So tell me, um, can you walk us through what a typical day might look for you? I know there's probably no such thing as a typical day because symptoms manifest mm. in different ways. But um, on a daily basis, how are you navigating your symptoms and managing everything and making it all work? Um, I guess, I don't know, it's difficult because I started a new job and it's full time. So I've been trying to sort of stabilize myself in that. So I guess a typical day, I wake up around like half eight. Um, I start work later than everybody else in my team because of that fact. Um, because London transport during rush hour is awful. And I just had to explain look, I can't stand on the train. I can get up in the morning. I just can't stand on a train that long. So yeah. 10 o'clock is almost like the earliest for me because I'm just missing that rush hour. Sometimes I still have to stand, but it's just not as crammed and packed as it would be maybe if I was having to come in for nine. Um, and it's not like you're because sometimes with a wheelchair and people are seeing that you need space or that you need a seat. You know, it's not like and even then, but even then at rush hour, how are they even going to get on? I, I fail to see how they'd even get on. Uh, and the, as you know, like London transport, you know, a lot of it was built in the Victorian era. So it's, it's very un, in, inaccessible. It's really bad. They're trying to change things now. They're really trying to update it. I think by 20, 2030, they want to have like most of our stations accessible, but it's going to take a while because things have been in place for hundreds of years now. And so it's kind of hard to change, but they're going to, they, they are trying. I have to give it to them. But, but um, Sometimes it takes me a while to kind of get ready in the morning because fatigue is fatigue. So it could take a long time to um, sort of unfold myself. Um, and then I get home and 
I guess I'm really I'm, I'm describing a day that's not really that bad really because that's how it would be if, if, if this was a day that wasn't that bad I'd come home I'd do the stuff I need to do then I'd go to sleep if it was a day that was bad I just wouldn't go to work that that's just it's just not possible um because if you're sleeping like 16 hours a day I don't know how helpful you're going to be in the workplace so um on a bad day I guess I sleep a lot um I'm in a lot of pain. Sometimes I'm in, I'm in, I'm in, I'm in pain all the time, but like uh, some days are worse than others. So I guess, I, kinda, I don't know, I guess you kind of said it. Like, there isn't really a typical day. It just, it does change a lot because the chronic illnesses are very unpredictable. They don't have a timer. They don't have any like warning where they go, okay, in five days, we're going to flare up. That would be great, by the way, because I could plan my life around that, but um, they don't. So yeah, I mean, if, for example, like if I was like, to go out with my mates, for example, we're going out to like the pub. I know that that day I can't do anything and probably the day before I rest. And then the day after we've gone out, I'm resting all day. It's got to be a buffer of rest before and after just for this couple of hours of going out. So I guess maybe to sum that up, it's just a lot of uh, planning where you can, even though it's unpredictable and trying to kind of give yourself the best environment to, so that when you do have that flair, you have, I guess the best I don't know, the most comfortable opportunity to flare, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and the next thing I wanted to ask you was about how you balance the demands of work and life as well. Like, are you in a job now where they're understanding if you need to work from home on a given day or um, are they aware you're ill as well? I'm in a job that's aware of my chronic illness. So luckily enough, um, I guess I work work at BBC um, and I was, I'm on, I got, I joined on a scheme called Extend, which basically is a scheme for disabled journalists, invisible or visible or otherwise. So basically it's a scheme that helps disabled journalists get into the BBC because it can be very difficult um, when you have some, any kind of difference. This is what these schemes are for. And so because of that, because it's a scheme for disabled people, they are more than understanding about your needs in being in the building. And so um, I had a needs assessment before I even started where I don't know. I was really scared because I, my boss was on the line and it was this, the needs assessor. And I thought I had to basically say, I think I need this. And it, it terrified me when actually I just explained what I go through and the assessor said it for me. And it was a really great feeling because I didn't have to ask for anything. She said, um, oh, okay, you have fatigue. All right. Well, travel is going to be difficult for you. So then I would say that you would need a taxi to work if you have to get to work early or you start at 10. I would also say that you can have a laptop that allows you to work from home sometimes if days where you are able to work, but you're not physically. Like, she just, she was just fantastic. She was just telling. And my boss was just like, yeah, that's fine. Yeah, sure. Like, cool. So they are understanding. Um, and I had a flare maybe a month ago. And it was the first time I had to say, hey, guys, I'm not going to be in for these next couple of days, I don't think, because I don't feel very well. And they were like, okay, cool. And so I was able to work from home. Uh, and it feels weird because it's the first time I've ever been in a place like this. I've never been in an environment where they've understood, ever. Yeah. Um, so it's... And, and that they're also understanding. I just think that's so exceptional. It, it really is. I, I generally... I don't know, it's a bit overwhelming sometimes thinking that because my previous job, I got fired. It's, it's, it's an actual like juxtaposition. My previous job, I got fired because I have a chronic illness. You know, it was to do with lupus. And so to go from a place where they fired you to a place where they put those adjustments in. Wondering with, um, with your old job being fired because you had to miss work because you were chronically ill, was there any legal recourse that you could take? Because that sounds like a very... <laughs> Absolutely. Um so my, my next video that I'm going to do, my friend's editing it for me because he's a star. So that's what it's going to be about. And 
I'm hoping to maybe like work with people to create some real change on this because that it's illegal what they did. It's yeah. 100% illegal. So um, maybe you know this already because you lived here for a while, but in the UK, you when you're sick from work, you don't need a fitness note. So you need a note, but it's after, on the eighth day you've been sick is when you would need to bring in a fitness note from your doctor to basically explain this person is unfit for work and needs more time off. Anything in between that time, you don't need a note. You just tell your, your employer, hey, I'm not feeling very well. I'm so sorry. I'm, I'm feeling ill. You don't need a note until the eighth day. In fact, usually if you ask for a note beforehand, your doctor will refuse because it's like, I don't need to give you one. Mm. Um, so that's how it works here. That's the law. Um, the policy of the company was just that you just tap the call and let them know you're going to be ill, uh, before, which I did. Mm. Uh, but unfortunately, this company doesn't care. And a lot of companies just don't care. So when I went to call my uh, manager to say I wanted more time off, she basically said, oh, I didn't really know this until I contacted HR, but they've terminated your contract because you didn't bring a fitness note on the first day you were sick. Uh, I didn't even, so I didn't, I didn't argue with her because I didn't know that was a law. I didn't know what the rules were. So I just was like, oh, okay, fine. Didn't like the job anyways, whatever. But I told my mom and she was like, no, 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 no. She's like, that's, 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 that's illegal. I told my doctor, my doctor was like, mm, that's illegal. Like everybody that I've told that to said they can't do that. Like that's actually, you can, um, you can potentially like uh, get a case of uh, work discrimination um, because of that. Um, so like here, you have to pass your probation because you are that probation period at work in order to sue for wrongful dismissal on most cases. However, disability discrimination uh, voids that. You can work in a job for one day and if they discriminated you based on disability under the Equality Act, you can uh, do something about it. But I'm not going to lie, it was more on me. The process is quite long because I spoke to like a, I wouldn't say a lawyer, but more like legal advice. We have like these free ones you can call up and basically ask about like disability discrimination. And she basically said, what, what condition do you have? I said lupus. And she goes, okay, under the Equality Act, lupus is not one of the illnesses that counts as a disability upon diagnosis. What? So upon diagnosis, if you have MS, AIDS, HIV or cancer, as soon as you're diagnosed with that, you are a disabled person under the law of the UK. Mm. Now, that doesn't mean you're not disabled if you have lupus or any other illness. What it means is, is that upon diagnosis straight away, you're not considered a disabled person immediately. You kind of have to prove it. You kind of have to have somebody agree that you are because it impedes your life. Because I guess the argument is, so one person with lupus may be more able than me. Right. So therefore, it, like, it, it's a bit of a... Vary. It's, yeah, it can vary. And so I'd have to basically, what she was saying, go to a judge have them basically say, yes, your illness under the Equality Act is a disability. And then I'd be able to say, well, because of my lupus, which is a disability, because the judge said so, you discriminated against me. But then they were like, well, then what's, what's the response that you want from this, though? What do you want to come out of this? Do you want your job back? Do you want... I don't know. <laughs> I don't want my job back. Ew. Like, um, I want money. You can pay me for that <laughs> because you put me out of a job and I don't have money and I have to support myself with a chronic illness. Like... So in the end, I was just like, okay, I'm going to leave it. And it has a three-month limit. So after three months, you can't do anything about it. And I just left it. I mean, you're not the first person I've spoken to who had a potential opportunity to take legal action and then decided not to. And there's often also that factor of, well, the emotional trauma. Oh, yeah. You live, you know, your entire chronic illness history, 
when going before the judge and trying to prove your disability to relive you know the experience of being let go because of discrimination and like how awful that is and all of that and having to to go through all of that over and over and over again for however long it drags out in the legal process which could be years in some cases you know a lot of people opt not to do anything because they just think well it's actually going to cause me more stress than it's worth and I'm going to get sicker because exactly exactly and I just I weren't feeling to go through that I mean even my daughter was encouraging me to but I just I don't know it just um it just didn't seem like something I just wanted to embark on. Um, in hindsight, sometimes I wish I did, because I think that the company is an awful company in general, not just for people with disabilities, but they just mistreat their workers. But um, no, yeah, I just, I, I, I don't think I would have wanted to have, to have, to have gone, to gone through all of that. They knew something was off because after, so my friend worked there, my best friend, we worked together there, that's horrible company. And after I got fired, I told him and they never told the workers the reason why I wasn't there anymore. So when other workers had been fired or let go, they'd be like, oh, so-and-so's got a new job or so-and-so we had to fire him because like you, you could see he didn't come in. He was always late. And so you, they would say if someone got fired or not because it's quite clear the reason. But because my reason was health-wise and it's not quite... And, and I worked hard, like I did my job, even though it was quite difficult for me. When I left, everyone kept asking my friend, where is she? Like, was she coming back or where is she? And he was like, she got fired. And they were like, no, she didn't. Like, she, what did she get fired for? She didn't do anything. And I'm like, no, no, no. And like, but he had to tell them because the manager would just say, oh, she just, uh, she decided that she wasn't going to come back, which was not the case. Even some of the workers I've seen on occasion, certain places, they said, hey, what happened to you? And I said, no, I got fired. And all of them just go, for what? you haven't done anything. Like you just, you just do the job and go home. Like you don't, you've never, you're always on time. Like, you know, so that's precise. They, you know, there's no reason to find me. Like even, you know, like that the reason was bad, but you can't even say it because it makes you look bad. Yes, absolutely. So, um, you know, it, it sounds like mm. you have become an advocate, not only for yourself, but for others who are living with chronic illness and disability and I, I would want I was wondering if you could tell us about how you started you look okay to me and what inspired you I mean obviously your own experience but um you know everything that went into the creation of this website and advocacy platform um so I started it the same I'd say it maybe after a year of uni I got diagnosed with lupus officially by the second doctor the same month I started university. So I started late September, early October. Um, and obviously I'm doing film. I wanted to be a cinematographer. That's, I was going to be like, I'm going to be a camera woman. I'm going to shoot films. I'm going to, that's my, that's what I want to do. And lupus is, just, it's, it just proved to be something that's not really possible at the moment to do because it's a very physical job. Film is a very physical job in general. You're standing for 16 hours a day. And I couldn't do some of those things. So by the end of it, I was frustrated because I felt like everybody would kind of found their place and their niche in film and was going on sets and being runners and having their start. And I wasn't able to. So um, that mixed with speaking to other people 
who went to uni with and realizing that one of my friends has MS and I didn't know because she doesn't talk about it like that. She had a walking stick, but I didn't know why. And she goes, yeah, I have MS. I have multiple sclerosis. One of my other friends, um, he had Crohn's disease. He has Crohn's disease um, and he had to have like a life-threatening, like life-changing surgery because he almost died. Uh, and then one of my closest, closest friends recently as well got diagnosed with Crohn's and he was experiencing symptoms of Crohn's around the same time I had its symptoms of lupus. And uh, it was me after I got diagnosed where I was like, I really think you should actually go because let's not like risk it and he has Crohn's and kind of speaking to them and then hearing their experiences and hearing that we had many similarities and talking to other people and seeing online that this wasn't something that was that rare and that quite a lot of young people have illnesses and then that together sort of made me think okay I think maybe I want to set something up because if there's enough people that are talking about this and we all kind of like, we don't have the same illnesses, but we kind of all have a similar story. I think there's something in that. And I think there's something that maybe we can kind of raise awareness for, but in a way that I know how, which is visuals. I don't really know any other way to do it, unfortunately. So perfect for young people because it's like that perfect millennial, you know, niche. And mm. your, your material so appealing. Like I love going on your Instagram and seeing your videos, which by the way, for those of you listening, um, you probably know I, I post transcriptions of all my episodes on the website. But what I love about what Jamisha does is that she has transcriptions on her videos as well. So they're totally accessible. Um, and, you know, they feature you and you've just got this lovely attitude and, and you're educating people. And um, they're just, it's just really cleverly done. And like everything is very like short and to the point. And like, I just think the content is so appealing. Um, and even if you weren't chronically ill, you'd probably be like, oh, what's this thing? And you would learn about it. <laughs> so I think it's great. Oh, thank you. I get nervous about my content sometimes because... Oh, um, no. Oh, no. I think no, it's I just... <laughs> thank you. It's just such a wonderful service for the chronic illness community. And also for the, the able-bodied community, you know, like... People are thinking about things outside of their experience because they have accessible content and people like you are creating it. Mm, I think that was the aim when making it. Like that was the bottom line. Who is this content for? Because when you're making something, like that is the first question. It's like, who is this for? And I was like, it has to be two audiences because in order for you to have some, any kind of change, you have to speak to the able-bodied community as well as our own. I think it's great to have a space where we're able to talk and feel better because that's important. But if we only are talking to ourselves, we won't be able to have the change in that world that we need if able-bodied people are not listening as well. And so I was just like, okay, it's got to be, not all my videos are going to be for both parties. Sometimes the videos want to be more so aimed at the chronic illness community because that's what I wanted to make that day. And sometimes it'll be more of an educational video that maybe people with chronic illnesses already know. And it's kind of like, oh yeah, I've been there, done that. But for a lot of the time, I try to have those two audiences in mind and I try to kind of hit that. And that's why the tone is in that way because, um, I wouldn't say that many people in the chronic illness, chronic illness community are like this, but it's very easy to be finger waggy and be like, you like, you know, and rightly so. I mean, come on, like it's quite irritating sometimes to be in the situations we're in. However, I think that could be a bit of a turn off for people that don't know much about it. And so I wanted it to kind of be a bit of a open space for learning, but also comfort. Um, yeah, definitely. But yeah, that's that was yeah, the main no, like, sort wonderful. of thing. Um, and I, I'm so glad that I found you. Like, I mean, Jamisha and I connected because of Instagram. I like wrote you a note, <laughs> and I was like, I love your Instagram. I love everything. 
And here we are on the podcast talking about everything. And it's, it's just wonderful to make these connections and meet people who are in the advocacy space, who are creating content that's for everyone um, and that level of inclusion and how important it is, you know, um, which is something that like we experience in the process of being diagnosed is, is mm. inclusion in the process of living our daily lives, needing more inclusion. So you're really providing a platform for that. And I, I just commend you for turning lemons into lemonade, truly. Like, here you got hit with these illnesses and you didn't just rest on your laurels. You got up and you did something. And I think that's really, I mean, just exceptional. Oh, well, thank you. But I can say the same for you, you know, oh, like even you setting up, <laughs> setting up this podcast, like, do you know what I mean? Like, and also the fact that I wouldn't have been doing this had it not been for the internet, like, we would not be sitting here talking. That's what I love about, you know, say what you want. Social media does have its disadvantages, as we all know, for certain reasons. But without Instagram, you know, you and I probably would never have been sitting here chatting with each other and connecting. Yeah. And so seeing other people is why I think it's great where we can both connect with our stuff. Like you're making this podcast, we're connecting, like having these conversations on other people's content. Like I just think that that is really important as well for us to like connect and talk and exchange ideas and support each other's stuff. Um, Cause the more we do that together, then the more, no matter where it is in your country, in my country, wherever, like that stuff gets raised to the forefront a bit more. And I would say chronic illness is starting to be talked about more. And I think I would definitely think the internet and us, people like us have something to do with that, which I think is great. Yeah. Um, so let's hope that it continues, I guess. Yeah, we'll keep riding the wave, right? <laughs> <laughs> so um, uh, we've, we've covered so much today, and, and I usually wrap up my interviews with a couple of top three lists. Um, mm-hmm. love to have some listicles at the end of my, my episodes. And I was wondering <laughs> if you could give us your top three tips for anyone who suspects they may be on the cusp of entering this chronic slash invisible illness world, mm-hmm. uh, what you would recommend to patients who are looking at a future that might be like ours? Oh, <laughs> well, it's a big one. <laughs> it's a big one. Um, I guess, number one, I always say this one, if you feel like, you know your body, if you feel like there's something that's not quite right, even if maybe a doctor has piled you off, maybe they've, they've said it's not that serious or it's, uh, I, I don't know, blah, blah, blah. Get that second opinion. Maybe it's a third. Um, do that smart research online. Don't Google your symptoms in a silly way. Do that smart research. If you really feel like there's something that's not quite right, you know deep down you're just not, it's not quite right. Just keep going. It's very difficult. It's emotionally draining and tiring. And it's so long, but it's worth it in the end because end of the day, like if you identify it, then you can address it. And so I would just say, yeah, like keep going. It sometimes takes a long time. And I guess we're working on a world where those waiting times are not so long. Um, but keep going is number one, because I just think it's, it's really important. I think um, number two, your life is not necessarily over if you get diagnosed with something. It's not done. It doesn't even mean that it's going to have to be the worst life. It means it might be a bit different and you might have to make some adjustments, um, but that's okay. And those adjustments are worthwhile and your life is still worth living, even with this chronic illness. It can be daunting thinking that you've got something potentially that's going to be with you for the rest of your life. I kind of don't see it that way as much anymore. I'm more just like, I've got something that is an impairment that needs to be treated and needs to be kind of like taken care of. 
but I don't always see, I, I don't know, it's, it's easy to see it as a death sentence, but it, it doesn't necessarily have to be. It depends on what illness it is, of course. Um, and and um, I guess maybe the third one is that if you get diagnosed or something like that, try not to compare yourself to who you were before you had a chronic illness. Um, you're not necessarily different people, but you are a, now a, a version of yourself with a chronic illness. It doesn't mean that you're lesser than that person, but I I was on this pursuit for trying to get back to Jamisha before lupus. Jamisha who could like run and, and work out all the time and, and stand for long periods of time and lift heavy things. And I'm like, okay, yeah, I'm just going to, if I just do da 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 I'm going to be Jamisha, that one. And it's like, you're never going to be that person again. Um, and that's for a variety of reasons. That's not just chronic illness. That's just because you're different. Like, I'm sure you thought differently and you did different things and you liked different foods and, and you had a, probably a different partner back then and maybe you have a new one now. Or maybe you're single. I don't know. You were a different person back then and that's okay. Don't strive to be that person again. I guess maybe strive to be the best person you can be now with that chronic illness. And that means giving yourself what you need, taking time, asking for help, being nice to yourself. That's being the best person that you can be. And I think as long as you're focusing on those things, I think then life just, I don't know, life gets a little easier when you are nice to yourself and you start from that place. Yeah, that's so, yeah. like passion that, and empathy for others too. Yes, it's just... Exactly. It emanates afterwards. Because mm. yeah. if you don't like yourself and you're struggling with that identity with chronic illness, then how are you able to actually show love and, and affection to others? properly in the way that you should so yeah I think those would be my three those are gorgeous and my last question is I'm sure that you've had to you know make some adjustments in in your lifestyle I mean thinking you like you know not eating toast and pasta you know um unless it's (laughs) gluten-free yeah and changing the way you do physical activity and I'm wondering if you ever cheat on any of your lifestyle Mm. or or what your like top three cheats or like guilty pleasures or even comfort activities are when you have a flare it's very easy to say i can cheat for the gluten-free thing because it's fairly new um so maybe i'll start with that like i do sometimes cheat on the food thing Mm. uh (laughs) which is you know i'm still learning on so sometimes i'll eat something with gluten in it or like fried chicken like oh my god my grandma her fried chicken is just like something else yeah it's really hard to say no to that so I'd say that one I love fried chicken (laughs) (laughs) um there's a second one I'd say second one maybe not on a flare but this is one that is a bad habit of mine uh I know that I should get the lift that day but I got the stairs because I felt like people were judging me um from time to time not as much as I used to but from time to time, I do it. Sometimes at work, like, um, they just don't think about it. They'll just go upstairs. And then I'm like, uh, uh, I could say it now that I need the lift, but maybe if it's just one flight, like, uh. Mm. So from time to time, I do that. And I think that's something I need to stop. Like, I think you need the lift, you need the lift, that's it. And I'm definitely a lot better. But uh, from time to time, I do sort of cheat on that. And I guess mm, in a flare... I'm trying to think, like, what would a secret indulgence be? Yeah, like something nice mm. you do for yourself when you're feeling... Mm. Uh, <laughs> probably, I guess, maybe it's a cliche one, but, like, binging, binge-watching a series on Netflix. Yes. Um, <laughs> and then just, like, eating candy, because yeah. I love sweets. I really like... I've got a massive sweet tooth, so... Yeah. 
<laughs> heard when you have chronic illness and you have a sweet tooth because everyone's like, probably the best diet for you doesn't involve sugar. <laughs> I can't help it. I can't help it. I'm addicted. Do you have any like favorite sweets or favorite TV shows that you like to binge on? Yeah. <laughs> um, I'm a big anime fan, I have to say. Um, I love anime. And my favorite anime is one called Itazura Narkis. And it's like a soppy, <laughs> it's like a soppy romantic one. And I'm actually not a fully affectionate, not a public display of affection romantic type person. For some reason, I just have this soft spot for romance, romance anime. And in this particular one, they meet in high school and they get married and have a kid. And I just like, when I'm having a bad time, that one I put on just because it's just so well packaged and well-rounded and so brightly colored. And I don't know, it was just so nice. Um, and I guess sweets wise, actually, I feel like, um, I don't know, maybe I'm betraying some Brits here, but I just feel like Americans do candy so much better than we do. So Not chocolate. <laughs> well, I wouldn't say chocolate. I feel like we, I feel like I prefer our chocolate, but yeah. in terms of candy, like sweets, mm. like I love grape heads and cherry heads. And, oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> grape I, um, cherry heads? are those American? Yeah, they are. I, I used to, when I visited New York, there was this corner store that had them and they're in this little box and they're 25 cents and they are so bad for you. You just, I just know they are like, I I re I when I left New York I went to the corner shop and I think I filled a massive bag full of them and he was just like are you going guy the guy was like are you going home now and I was like yeah I'm not gonna be here for a while so uh, I'm gonna have to like stock up those are my favorites so maybe it's an East Coast thing maybe um, yeah maybe I sometimes buy them on Amazon sometimes I buy them off Amazon like in a crate. I shouldn't even admit that, but sometimes I buy them off Amazon in a crate. Was there anything else that you want to add um, about your experience um, for listeners out there? And certainly let them know how to find your website as well. Cool. I guess maybe just last things is just yeah. everyone experiences chronic illnesses differently. Mm-hmm. So sometimes when I was online, I would see someone else um, with lupus and they're going through visibly maybe a diff- more difficult time than I am. They're in hospital a lot more. And it sometimes makes you think you shouldn't complain or you just just shut up because, you know, oh, you know, someone's going through a worse time than I am. Mm -hmm. And it's like, maybe they are, but you're also going through a difficult time. So everyone's on their own journey. Just because someone might have a more severe form of it than you doesn't mean you don't have it either. And it doesn't mean you you shouldn't be kind to yourself and speak out. We all just experience it differently. And yeah, that's the main one. Because sometimes online and you're seeing all these different chronic illness people, you sometimes can compare yourself weirdly to them. Because you're like, oh, I'm not, I'm not that sick. So, but it's like, no, I'm like, you're, you're, you've got your experience. Just, we're all different, and we all can learn from each other. Um, yeah. <laughs> so, uh, people can find me. So, the website is youlookokaytome.com, yeah. um, and then all the socials are youlookokaytome. But the OK is O K A Y, and not the letters OK, because I felt like some people would missay it. They'd be like, you, you look ok. So. <laughs> I didn't want that. I didn't want people to make that. <laughs> you look okay to me. You look okay to me. <laughs> That's fantastic. Jamisha, it has been such a pleasure to meet you and to interview you and thank the internet oh. gods for putting us together. Um, and I, I, I this story is going to inspire so many of our listeners. So thank you so much for joining us. And I would love to have you back again soon. So um, let's keep talking. Thank you for the opportunity and lovely talking to you and meeting you and um, 
yeah, I, I look forward to seeing more of the podcast and the other episodes and other people that you have on and keep doing what you're doing. It's great. Thank you. You too. <laughs> <laughs> That's it, folks. Thanks for listening. As always, please check us out online at uninvisiblepod.com and all over the social media world at uninvisiblepod. We love your feedback and suggestions, so please drop us a line via the website if you have questions, ideas for topics to cover in future episodes, or just want to say hello. We're all about relationships and collaboration here, so credit where credit is due. Music for this episode is by Sean Hart, who can be found at seanhart.com. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to podcasts.